So, maybe you're thinking about making some big changes or setting some ambitious goals for yourself. Maybe you want to lose 20 pounds or read through the Bible. Maybe you want to run a marathon or repair a broken relationship. Whatever your big goal is, the temptation is to expect to go straight from here to here, or from here to here. The reality is, there are a lot of small steps between big decisions and big results. Challenges and obstacles await. At some point, you might even want to quit. But stand firm. Don't be disappointed with slow progress. Don't be overwhelmed by the destination. Rather, focus on what you can do today. Skip dessert. Read a chapter. Go for a run. Make a phone call. The more difficult the journey, the more rewarding the destination. And it can all start today with just one small step. morning. Welcome to the second week of a series called One. What if we just changed one big thing this year? Just one. I mean, usually we have a big list of things that we want to change, but what if we just did one? We talked about that that last week in the beginning part of this series. If you missed that, get on the website, uh, take a look at the podcast and listen to what we talked about because it all revolved around this verse in the book of Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I remember when I first really grasped what that means, because sometimes at work, you need to remind yourself, it's really God I'm serving, not this person. Sometimes at home around the dinner table, you need to remind yourself, it's really God I'm bringing honor to right now, not what I want to say to these people. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves, this is something I'm doing to please God. That's what this verse is telling us. Whatever you do, work out with all your heart. That makes difficult goals, difficult decisions, and even difficult environments easier to deal with when we understand I'm going to work at this with all of my heart. See, it changes the way we look at all of the things we have to do. It changes the motivation and the foundation for why we do what we do. So if you didn't get one of those cards last week, that's got Colossians three verses 23 and 24 on it, go by the info booth afterwards. It's a little card that says one on one side. It's got that verse on the other and put it somewhere prominent this year. And go throughout your year thinking, here are the things I want to do. But I'm going to work at this as if I'm working for God. It'll change your perspective. If we can wrap our minds around the idea that small steps, that little things can lead to this huge outcome for God, it will change our life. It will change the way we approach things. Now, when it comes to change... People kind of approach changing in a couple different ways. There's the person who absolutely hates it, who wants things to always stay the same in their life, at work, in the family. Never, ever, ever do they want things to change. Like your furniture and your house will look the way it does when Jesus comes back. 
I mean, you set it in there. Why not just leave it where it is? Why you want to change it around? Because some people say, hey, it's Thursday. Let's change the furniture around. Let's just make it a little bit different. And you embrace it and you love it. So whatever one of these categories you find yourself in, I think probably at different times in life, we find ourselves in both places. We need to embrace the idea that if we make some subtle shifts in our thinking, it can really have a big impact on our world and on the world around us. And one of the subtle shifts I want to talk to you about today is what if we changed the way we looked at people, people that we know, people that we don't know, they're just in general, the way we looked at people and our involvement in their lives. When it comes to people, here are some stats. There's 7 billion of them in the world, 315 million in the United States, 9.7 million in North Carolina, 1 million in Wake County, about 450,000 in Raleigh, around 1,000 people call LifePoint Church home, their church home, and then the people in this room. So if you're one of those people that say, I just don't like people, you're on the wrong planet. I mean, you don't really have a big choice. Just take the one million people who live in our county. You have heard me say many times that 88% of the people who live in Wake County do not go to church. That's true. And our goal is to connect as many of them as possible with God. But as we're sharing this big goal and these big numbers, it's really easy to get where we lose sight of the individual, of the one person who's hurting or the one person who's searching. Because we're thinking big, big 88%. That's, that's 880,000 people. That's just too big. I just, I can't even get my, wrap my mind around that many people. So it's easy for that number not to have a face. But then, a few weeks ago, I saw somebody baptized by their small group leaders. And that number had a face. Just last week, I had to take my car in to get work done on it. And the mechanic, the guy that owned the shop, he drives across Durant Road every day. And he goes, oh, that church, yeah, I saw your sign, I saw... All, you know, all the stuff going on. That's exciting. He said, tell me about it. I don't go to church. What, what do you do? And I started telling him, he said, wait, I got a question. Now, is your church, is it weird? Do people like, do people yell and scream and run around? And I said, just in the lobby after their kids. That's about it. Occasionally one gets in here. But then he started asking questions about the church. And I said, oh, it's really casual. It's really laid back. I think you'd be shocked. You could wear what you got. He goes, this, I could wear it. I said, yeah, that's like what I wear. And you're the pastor. Yes, I am. <laughs> wow, that's 20% off. And I was like, thank you, you know. <laughs> but that 88% represents real people. People whose lives are lived Far from God. Somebody ought to tell them. Somebody ought to let them know. Somebody ought to invite them. And if you're a Christ follower, that's your job. That's what God expects of people who say, I follow Christ. And I want to let you know the difference that's made in my life. So you can consider if you're ready to do the same thing. 
But when we think about those huge numbers, over 800,000 people, that we would love to see as a church, part of our, our vision is to help that number go down. So whenever we turn the lights off on LifePoint, it'll probably be the lights off on Donnie first, but whenever those lights go off, I want to be able to say that number's not the same anymore because of a group of people that said, we want to put a dent in that number. So if that number overwhelms you, you need to understand crowds have always overwhelmed people. If you look in Scripture... Jesus was followed by crowds all the time. In fact, he became so overwhelmed at times, he had to kind of be rushed out to get away from the crowd so he could clear his mind. So he could get alone with his father. So he could think about and contemplate what he was going to do next. He was overwhelmed by it at times. Religious leaders in Jesus' day sometimes were just baffled at the fact so many people followed Jesus. And not just the fact so many people followed Jesus, but the type of people who followed Jesus. Because the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were in the category that said, we like things the way they are. We're in charge. We say who's in and who's out. And we want to keep it that way. Then Jesus shows up and says, no, guess what? Everybody's in that wants to be in. Everybody can follow me. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. You're in. And religious leaders of Jesus' day were freaked out by it. So crowds were following Jesus one day. And the religious leaders were saying, what are you doing, Jesus? Why do you hang out with these types of people? And lots of them. And Jesus responds by telling them three stories that are in the book of Luke chapter 15. There are some Bibles coming in the aisles right now. If you're here for the first time, thanks for showing up today and checking us out. We'd like to give you a Bible if you don't have one. If you'd like to just borrow that one and read along as I read from the scriptures today, they're also on the screen. You can borrow it and just leave it in the back on the way out or take it home with you. So Jesus, in response to religious people saying, why are you around all of these people like this? And he tells three stories. The first story starts in Luke 15, verse 3. It says, so Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Then a few verses later, he says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp, sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And then the last story is about a father and two sons. One son who stayed at home and did everything his father said. Another son who was a rebel and disrespected his father and was probably just a class A jerk. Took all of his inheritance money, left, wasted it all, and found himself very far away from his father, living in regret. And then... He decides it's time to go home. And the way Jesus tells the story, it makes it sound like his father stood and waited. Because Jesus said, when the son was still a long way off on his way home, the father ran out to meet him. So three stories where Jesus talks about one thing. One sheep. Being big enough a deal to a shepherd to risk the other ones and go get it. One woman who was willing to wreck her house looking for this one coin, which in her culture represented her ability to snag a husband. 
So she was single. She wanted a man. For some reason, nine didn't get you a good man as ten. And so she was looking for that coin. It was a big deal. It was worth everything. And then the father who had two sons, one that was not rebellious outwardly and one that was. He risked the relationship with his other son to stand on the porch, the the balcony, the driveway, whatever it was to look and wait for the day when that one son came home. Now, you might think, well, the shepherd had 99 sheep. It's just one. What is the big deal? I see several families at LifePoint that have like four and five kids. I think somebody has six kids. Is that right? Six kids. Now, picture you're all at the mall with your kids and you get in the van and you think you you say, okay, one, two, three, four. Well, let's just leave him. (laughs) Just leave him here. Simplify things around the house. We got four more to deal with. It'll make things a lot easier. You wouldn't say that. You would turn the mall upside down until you found your kid, even though you had four other ones just like it waiting in the van. So Jesus is saying this one person, this one thing is important. In fact, it's so important. It was worth Jesus risking everything so he could focus on one person. That's the way he lived his life and conducted his ministry. He would preach to the masses. You can read in the New Testament, Matthew through John, about Jesus preaching to large, large crowds of people and walking through large crowds of people pushing on him. But you can also read about him stopping in the middle of a large crowd and paying attention to one person, one woman who needed healing, one crippled beggar who needed to be able to walk. And he would stop everything he was doing and focus on one person. And so people watched Jesus do that. And then when he left the earth, he said, hey, go tell everybody about me. And they did. And by the year 100 AD, scholars say there were about 25,000 Christians on earth. So 100 years, 25,000, took a little while to get it rolling. But 250 years after that, there were over 20 million followers of Christ on earth. How did that happen? How did it go from 25,000 to over 20 million? It's because his followers did what he did. They preached to the masses, but never failed to focus on one. You can read about one of Jesus's disciples. His name is Peter. And Peter, after after the church had been started, they're going to the temple to speak to Jewish people about Jesus. And it's prayer time, so it's really crowded. And in the middle of this crowd... Peter notices someone that started talking to him that needed to be healed. And so he offers them healing in the middle of getting ready to speak to the masses. No wonder he did that. That's what he saw Jesus do. That's what we see Jesus do. If you're taking notes, write this down. People matter to God, so they should matter to me. Now, people, is that's a big number. That's huge. People. Well, 7 billion are how many on the earth are on the earth. So, so every one of them should matter. How could I, how could we ever do something that would impact all of them? Well, we can't impact every single person, even all of those 880,000. We can't, we can't, it's too big of a number, but what we can do is just what Jesus did. Preach to the masses, focus on the one. You may think preaching, Donnie, that is your part. Thank you. I'll handle the other part. 
No, all of us, we can all preach to the masses. You may never stand on a stage and speak to people about Christ. But you can do, the way you preach to the masses, you say, hey, you want to come to church with me? Hey, you want to come to my small group? Hey, you want to come to our youth group on Sunday nights? It's really cool. I'd love to have you. That's how you preach to the masses. Just invite. You can invite 50 people in a week. That's easy. Hey, you want to join me? You want to show up? Hey, here's a card. If you if you don't want to say anything, just walk up and, you know, hand somebody a card. And you've invited somebody. That's how you preach to the masses. We can all do that. It doesn't even take a whole lot of thought or a whole lot of courage to do that. But go another step. How do you just focus on the one? How do you do that? Because as you're out there inviting, because, you know, survey after survey says the reason most people don't go to church is because they haven't been asked. And when they're asked, would you likely go to church if you were asked? They check. Most likely I would if someone were to ask me. So that's your job. Go do it. Now, focus on the one while you're preaching to the masses. That's the more difficult, the more intimidating part. Even for us as church leaders. Because numbers mean a lot to me. Not that I feel a sense of self-accomplishment, but it means a lot that there are more people connected with God this week, this year, and I judge that by how many people are showing up this week, this year, than this week, last year, and the year before that, and the year before that. Because numbers to me represent people who I hear their lives have changed, their marriages have been restored, addictions have been broken, people open up the Bible for the first time. I want as many people as God sends our way. To be able to get connected with him. So preaching to the masses. I hope we have to add a third service here at the school. Even before we get to the building. I hope it's too small when we get moved in there. And start meeting there. Because I want to see that many people get connected with God. And with those big dreams. Those big visions. And those big goals. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the one person who needs attention. So as a staff. We are intentional about focusing on one and we're not perfect at it. You may feel like, hey, I slipped through the cracks. Nobody called me. That's totally our fault. We totally messed up and we'll probably do it again because we're imperfect. But we do our best to say focused on the one in staff meeting. We always go around and we always say, what are some wins in people's lives? And that's where we share how individuals are taking steps to get closer to God. So what if this year you overcame those challenges like we do almost on a weekly basis and you said, I'm going to focus on one person and I'm going to be part of helping them change from not being connected to God to being connected with God. Now, that's a little bit more intimidating than just saying, hey, you want to come to church? That might get messy. That involves conversation and confrontation. It might be difficult. And as I've challenged people through the years to get more involved in other people's lives, I hear this theme of one thing I hear people say is, I'm a wreck. I can't. How in the world can I help anybody? My life is a complete wreck. God specializes in using messed up people. Think about when Jesus left the earth, there were 11 disciples because one of them, Judas, killed himself. He betrayed Jesus and he went off and committed suicide. There were 11 disciples. All 11 of those ran away from Jesus when he went through his trial and his crucifixion, his death. They ran. They were deserters. 
But then that's the same 11 people. He said, I want you to go build my church. And then not long after that, he chose this guy named Paul who wrote two thirds of the New Testament, who happened to hate Christians, want to kill every one of them and eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. And God said, you will do. You're the person that I want to lead and be influential in the first century church. So God specializes in using messed up people. That's why when non-messed up people come to our church, they're really uncomfortable. And we have a special seat for you. If you're perfect, you don't make mistakes and you know everything. It's out in your car and drive on the way home. Because you won't like it here if you're perfect. So we're all messed up. So if you, you can't say, well, my life's a wreck, so I can't help anybody. You also can't say, well, their life's a wreck. They're not, they're not ready to hear anything. Trust me, I see them on a weekly or daily basis. Their life is a wreck. Perfect. God uses wrecked people to reach wrecked people. So if you're wrecked and they're wrecked, you're right where God needs you to be. And if we let God worry about their heart and just be his mouthpiece, maybe the feeling of being wrecked will start to subside. Every person that I've ever looked at and thought they're not ready and then watch them finally make a decision to say, I want to follow Christ. I found out later there was just something stirring. You might be here today sitting beside somebody or around somebody you think they're not ready. They just showed up because they love me or because they want peace in the house or whatever. But you don't know what's stirring inside. You don't know every little word, the seed that goes into their heart. You don't know how they're looking at life on the inside. Because just under the surface, they could be just waiting for somebody to say, can I offer you some help? Can I get you connected with somebody? Would you like to go to this Bible study that I go to? Would you like to come to church with me and get to know some people? You don't know. They're just waiting for somebody to say that. Maybe you think, well, I just don't know where to start. I just don't know where to start. Start right where you are. Whatever you can do, do it. When I think back about my walk of faith from being disconnected with God to walking the road of faith and being connected with God and giving my life to him. Think about all of the people that got me from where I was not connected in any way in my life to where I was deeply connected with God and called on to lead and all the things that, that, you know, there are people along the way who were like links in a chain. There's the person, well, I guess the first person is my mother. I'm sure prayed for me before birth. And I know during my teenage years, probably, uh, definitely a lot because I lived somehow and it was because she prayed. So there's my mom. And then there's the next link to the person that invited me. Hey, come to church come, or come to this Bible study. Even though if you looked at me, you would have thought that guy's not interested in a Bible study. If you heard his vocabulary, it's pretty short and it's a little bit offensive. So let's not invite him. But they said, hey, I'll see I invite you. Then the person that said, can I, can I sit down with you and open up the Bible? You seem interested. Yeah, I'd love to. Now on the outside, you would have never guessed this. But there's another link in the chain. And then there's the person who said, are you ready to receive this message? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, I want this. How do I do that? What do I need to do? And then there's the person or the people who offered me grace when I made mistakes. And then there's the person who said, hey, you know what? I think you're a leader. You need to seriously, seriously consider about leading in a larger capacity. And the next person and the next person 
all of them equally important and equally part of the chain that helped me get deeply connected with God. So don't think, I don't know what to do. You do know what to do. Build relationship. Get to know people. Be the link in the chain. And you may think it's an insignificant thing. But when I look back, I doubt the person who invited me to church even has a realization of what it has resulted in and what it's meant in my life. I doubt the person that first said, let's open the Bible together, who probably had to get up a lot of courage before he even asked me. I doubt he even realizes what an impact that was. So you don't know what the impact is going to be. Just do it. Just invest. Just focus on one person. One of the 7 billion. One of the 315 million. One of the 9.7 million. One of the 1 million. One of the 450 some thousand. One of the people in your life. Focus on one as you preach to the masses and watch what God does. Because if you are a follower of Christ, if you've taken that step and said, I want to follow Christ, that's part of what we need to do. Not to say, God, look at me, how great I am, but because you know how, like people who say, I don't have time to do this. Have you ever gone to a really cool movie and never told anybody about it? Have you ever done that? A really great movie and you just don't breathe a word of it. No, most people say, you have to see this movie. I'm putting this on Facebook because everybody in the world has got to see this movie. And you become the greatest advertising agent for that movie of anybody because you loved it. That's what God hopes for each of us. That we become one of his best advertisers and letting people know about him. And if you think, gosh, you're just adding me to add things to my schedule. Now I got to be a link in somebody's chain. How does that work? All the other stuff I got to do. When Jesus told the disciples this in Matthew 28, he said, therefore, go. And then he says, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything I've told you. If this were written in the original language, which was Greek, it wouldn't just be the word go. It, It should be worded like this. As you're going through your life, do these things. So he's not saying add another thing to your plate. He's saying as you're at work, as you're at school, as you're building your career, as you're putting your kids to bed, as you're hanging out at the gym, as you're having lunch with people, as you do that, influence other people to know about the message of Christ. So it's nothing you have to add to your list. As you go along, do these things. And when you do that, you are a light to a world that is full of darkness. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 5. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So you're already assured that you're going to make a difference. It may not be in the way you think. It may not be immediate. It may not be for years later, but you'll make a difference when you spread God's light. Take a look at this video about it. Once upon a time, an old man crossed a bridge into a city that looked sad and dark even in the daylight. Can a city cry? Well, if a city could, then this one would. The Ferris wheel stood still and rusted. No one would dare to swim in the lake filled with trash and neglect. 
the gates of the city were broken when the flower man walked toward them, but he was glowing as if he knew a secret. Well, no one notices the flower man, despite his glowing and even his chuckling as he seems to challenge the despair, the division, the danger, and the darkness all around him. The city is blind to him. They're looking down, looking down the way people do when they have given up. The flower man finds a rundown house in the center of town and says, this'll do just fine. Strangely, no one notices him as he literally glows with anticipation. The young girl is preoccupied with her boredom. The man sits in a bath but never feels clean. The painter stares at the blank canvas. The elderly woman carries too much. The thief is plotting, and no one notices the flower man. No one except the little girl next door. The flower man sets to work, replacing brokenness with beauty. Two little girls are just in awe. A few adults who brave a glance are mostly cynical or even offended. Most of the folks from the sad city hurry by without even looking up. And then it happened. The moment the flower man knew would come, he knew it would change everything. Just as the thief was plotting to steal the beauty that the neighbors still didn't understand, the flower man gave it away. A gift so delicious that the little girl next door begged her mommy for one. The milkman was plain old shocked, but the artist was inspired. The flower man gets busy doing what he came to do, giving flowers away. The city seems to whisper and even shout, Life is coming! The streets are aglow with it. Can it come to the fountain? The little boy asks. It is coming to my canvas, the artist declares. It has come to my window? The bathing man amuses. Despite the beauty all around, to some, life can be frightening. So the little girl next door says a quiet goodbye and has moved quickly away. But life makes the old woman smile and the old man scratches head. The mother prays, the beggar receives, and the thief weeps. Because life cannot be stolen, it can only be given away. The flower man has a cookout and the streets turn into a block party. Dancing, music, laughter, and games. Loneliness is swallowed up by joy. The canvases are beautiful. The stories of the ancients are told. Intimacy is in the window and the fountain is flowing again. Joy lights the night. Games and music fill the streets. Their hearts are pulsing with life. Their hands are filled to overflowing. They cannot see over it. They cannot see that the flower man has packed up his bag of seeds and journeyed on. The flower man leaves the city aglow with love, answered prayers, and hope. Why did he leave? He left because there is someone who needs a flower, someone who couldn't get to him, so he will go to them, and he will bring them life. As you go, if you're a follower of Christ, you have within you the ability to influence other people. And I hope that you have thought of a person that you want to really get involved in their lives and be part of the chain that leads them to a deep connection with God. If you've thought of that person, write it down today. If you haven't thought of that person, ask God to reveal it to you. And if you're not connected with God, allow somebody into your life so they can help you get there and walk the journey with you. May that happen for you in 2013. May you get to the end of this year and say, thank you, God, for allowing me to be part of somebody getting connected to you for eternity. God, thank you for this challenge and for the way Jesus gave us the example to preach to the masses and never lose focus on the one. And we pray this in his name. Amen.